Well, friends, before we dive into God's Word this morning, I did want to start by thanking all of you that prayed for us and checked in on us this past week as our family was on vacation. It was uh, really good uh, to be away and to be together with our family, and it was a fun time. Uh, We got to do a lot of relaxing things and, and didn't get ourselves too caught up and too busy in our vacation. And so I just want to say thank you from, from a pastor. I really appreciate uh, the members of this church loving us well and giving us time away. Uh, one of the things that we did get to do uh, that I hadn't got to do in a while, and I don't know if I've ever gotten to do it in this way, is we got to go to a drive-in movie. Uh, we, we took our car up to a parking lot and they had some giant inflatable screen. It wasn't a real drive-in movie in the sense that the screen was huge. It was some inflatable screen. But we sat in the car and we watched most of the movie Aladdin. And it brought up a feeling that I wasn't expecting. And it was a feeling of how much I have missed in the last year going to the movies. Now, I'm not a huge movie goer, uh, but I would go a few times a year. I think the last movie that I went and saw was with some of you. I don't even remember what it was uh, now. And it just made me realize, man, I miss movie theaters. And I hope that we can get back to them very soon, especially in the summer, because you know what summer means in the movies. It's time for summer blockbusters. You know that it wasn't always the case in movies. It wasn't always that we had summer blockbusters, but everything actually changed in the summer of 1975. Some of you were there, some of you remember a little movie that came out from Steven Spielberg called Jaws. Jaws was released in the summer of 1975 and totally changed the Hollywood landscape. It was a big budget movie and Hollywood realized, wow, if we do this every summer, we can rake in a lot of money and get a lot of people to come see the movies. Then two years later, everything changed again with the release of Star Wars, A New Hope in 1977. 1977, Star Wars, A New Hope is released. And it's not just a summer blockbuster in the way that Jaws was, but it's different because At the beginning, you see this in the opening scroll, but by the end, you realize that this isn't the only Star Wars movie. And we're introduced to a new era in movie making known as the sequel. The sequel. And now every movie that comes out, we're left wondering by the end, is there going to be a sequel? Of course, there's going to be a sequel at some point. And now we have prequels and spinoffs. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Not to get you excited about going home and watching movies this afternoon. But because of where we're going to be, where we are going to be this summer as a church, over the summer we're going to be looking at the glorious blockbuster that is the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because without a doubt, Jesus Christ has impacted more than all of the summer blockbusters combined. And we're not going to look at one of the Gospels from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John those stories that those men put together about Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. Instead, we're going to look at what we might call Jesus, the sequel. Jesus, the sequel. We're going to look at what this man, Luke, tells us about the work of Jesus in the life of his apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit after Jesus had died He rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We're going to be talking about the book most commonly known as Acts. 
or as you might grow accustomed to calling it by the end of the series, Jesus, the sequel. Now we're going to talk more about why this book is so important in just a moment. But as I've been praying over this series and preparing to walk through this book with you. I've come up with five promises that I think I can guarantee you'll receive by the end of our time in the book of Acts. You write these down if you want to in your bulletin. Come back at the end of the series and see if God was faithful to fulfill these promises. But here are five promises I think just studying this book together will bring about. Number one, in studying the book of Acts, you're going to understand the Old Testament better. You're going to understand the Old Testament better. That's going to become apparent even in today's sermon. And number two, you'll understand the work of the Holy Spirit more. Now, some of you are some Holy Spirit rollers. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. But some of us, the Holy Spirit is kind of a off to the side aspect of the Godhead, something we haven't considered too much. By the end of this book, we'll come to understand the Holy Spirit more. Number three, You'll understand the sovereignty and the providence, the direction and the guiding hand of God more. Number four, fourth promise from studying the book of Acts is that you'll grow to love the apostles, specifically grow to love Peter and Paul more and better understand how to read their New Testament letters. And finally, the biggest one of all, by the end of our study of Acts, I hope that you'll see how it is Jesus and Jesus alone who builds his church. So let's jump into this book and see how this guy Luke begins volume two of Jesus' ministry. We grab a Bible and turn with me to Acts 1, 1 through 11. Acts 1, 1 through 11. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible of your own, that's okay. We have some there in the pews in front of you, those black ones. Grab one of those. If you're new to the Bible, we are glad that you're here. As you've seen from our service, we spend a lot of time in God's Word. So if you're new to the Bible, Acts 1 is on page 855 in that pew Bible. You can go ahead and turn there. When you get there, just stay right there at the beginning. That's where I'll begin reading here in a moment. As always, we say this each week, if you do not have a Bible of your own, it would be our joy to give you a Bible today. We have some in the foyer on the back table. They're blue and they are free and they are for you. Or if you have a friend who you know needs a Bible, grab one of those on your way out today uh, for yourself or for someone else. Well, friends, can I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? I'll end our reading today by saying this is the word of the Lord. And if you feel willing, I'd invite you to respond by saying praise be to God. Hear now God's word to us today from Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. And so the story begins. Or should I say, the story continues. Let's look at it and see how this guy Luke sets up this second volume in his ongoing saga of the life of Jesus Christ. And here in this introduction, we see three things that he establishes in these first 11 verses from the very beginning, which I'm going to use as my three points to guide our time. If you'd like to write these down to better follow along, you certainly may. First, we find the preparation. The preparation. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. Second, we find the mission. We find the mission. And this is given in verses 6 through 8. And finally, we see the ascension in verses 9 through 11. The preparation, the mission, and the ascension. So let's consider each. And as we do, my prayer for us this morning is that we would begin to see how Jesus is not finished with his people, but is at work for us in heaven and among us by the Holy Spirit so that we may see his kingdom built both near and far. Okay, so let's think about that. Considering point one, the preparation in verses one through five. Preparation. Preparation. Now, I didn't talk too much in the introduction there about the context and the background and the author of this book because it's established here in the first few verses is actually a part of the story itself. Look back at verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, how are we, as readers of this book, prepared by Luke writing it from the very beginning? Well, the text tells us that this story that we are reading is not volume one. It's not volume one, it's volume two. It is the second part of the story that Luke is telling us. Who was Luke? Well, Luke was one of the earliest historians of Christianity. He was a Gentile doctor who was a very close friend and helper of the Apostle Paul, as we'll come to see in the later chapters. He spends a lot of time traveling with him. And as a historian, Luke does his research. He went around as Luke 1, back in the beginning of his gospel, he tells us, he interviewed eyewitnesses to all that Jesus did, and he looked at the original sources. And he says in Luke 1, 3, he writes an orderly account an orderly account so that the reader, this man Theophilus, which means lover of God, might know with certainty the things that he had been taught. And that's part of the goal of this series, friends. As we look at God's Word, this is, this is why, as a church, we spend so much time in God's Word so that we, as followers of Jesus, may know with certainty the things that we've been taught may have assurance that Jesus is who he says he is and he is worth following with every fiber of our lives that he may be exalted as king of all. We find here that this is not some dry, boring history. Going through the book of Acts, I hope none of you nod off like you did in high school history class. This is not a boring story at all. The book of Acts has an almost cinematic 
quality to it. Drawing you into this amazing story, the narrative that captivates and causes us to consider how we might be a part of this story as well. And so as this story opens, Luke reminds us of everything that he did in his first volume. You see there he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now this is important, don't miss this, because it helps you understand the book as a whole. In volume 1 in Luke's gospel, he tells us all that Jesus began to do and teach. You notice how he puts it there. Not that all that Jesus did, and not all that Jesus taught, but he began to do and teach, began to accomplish. This teaches us something from the very beginning about how to read this book. See, in, in some of your translations, it may be labeled this way. The title of this book is often called The Acts of the Apostles. Now, that's a decision that we've made throughout history of how to title this book. But I think there's probably a better title for this book. Based on what Luke says here in verse 1 of Acts, we see here this is not the story primarily of the apostles, but it's a story primarily about Jesus and what he continues to do. This is a story about the acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we will see throughout the entirety of this book, Jesus is not done working. This is one of the reasons I think the two books, Luke and Acts, overlap. It's because Luke wants to remind us of how things were right before Jesus ascended and what he did because Jesus has not just left the scene that he may go up into heaven, sit back in his recliner and twiddle his thumbs. No, Jesus is still at work. Luke tells us as much. You'll come to see that by the power of the Spirit, it begins with very few people. What appears to be a completely discredited Messiah who was crucified by the Romans. And within a few short years, we're going to see this gospel and this church begin to explode radically across the known world. Friends, we see these 12 men. We're going to see how they reform next week after Judas' death. We see how these 12 men turn. And, and Paul, down the line, how these, these men turn the world on its head. Something that's seemingly impossible they're able to do. Why? Because Jesus is at work among them. Now, we the readers have been prepared by Luke in the opening verses. But the question of the story is how would Jesus... Prepare this little group of followers that he has who have just gone through this really crazy thing where he was arrested and beaten and crucified and then he shows back up. How is he going to prepare them now to be about this mission that he's about to give them? And that's exactly what Luke tells us as we really begin these acts of Jesus Christ. Like any good story, there needs to be a level of preparation. You guys know in all of the best movies... Like, right? And James Bond, before he goes about the mission, he's got to prepare. And the guy's got to give him all the gadgets. That's what we see here. We see Jesus preparing his apostles for what they're about to do. Go back with the, to the text with me. Look back at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here we have it, the preparation, preparing the apostles 
for what they must do. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing them. And he gives three things to prepare them that I want you to see in these few verses right here. Three things that he's going to give them as tools in their belt to be about the work that he's about to call them to. So how does he prepare his apostles ahead of time? Number one, through the resurrection. First and foremost, they needed to be prepared by being convinced that Jesus was really alive. I mean, it is the, the pivot point, the, the, the climax, the pinnacle of all that Jesus has done. We thought about this a few weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then we of all people are to be most pitied. But if he is risen, it means power and it means victory and it means hope. After all, they had witnessed the arrest and the beatings, the crucifixion. They had been there through all of it. Now, I know sometimes as modern folks, we have this kind of uh, modern you know, snubbery and pride that we like to think that people who lived a long time ago were dumb and not as smart as we are because we have science. But friends, let me let you in on a little secret. People who lived in the first century had just as hard a time believing that people came back from the dead as we do today. Nobody thought that people just came back from the dead. They weren't somehow fooled by magic. And we're so much smarter than they are because we have science. No. And so Jesus has to prove to them that he's alive. And so he shows up. He eats with them. He spends time with them. He lets them touch him. This is what the end of Luke's gospel and the other gospel accounts lay out. They touched his wounds and he interacts with them with over 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, they are convinced. Now for us, who don't have the benefit of being with Jesus during that time, for us, the apostles are, I believe, one of the strongest proofs that the resurrection was real. The apostles, they're one of the key proofs, the most major proofs that the resurrection was real. How so? Well, I don't think it's simply that people tend to suffer and die for something that they know isn't true. That's an argument that you often hear for proving that the resurrection was true by the apostles' accounts. That if it was false, would they have suffered and many of them died because of it? That's right and that's good, but it does not stop there. There's more to it than that. Because we find, and, and we know this ourselves, some of you know this better than others, that religious belief and religious practice are some of the most change-resistant things in all of humanity. It doesn't matter how modern the world around us gets, religious belief does not tend to change. And yet, what do we have here in this story? As we'll find, we have a bunch of Jews changing the day that they worship to give up their sacrificial practices, to admit that a human being was actually God, then to worship him, and then to talk about the God as one God in a triune Godhead, the Trinity, three in one. And they do all of this in a matter of weeks. They give up centuries upon centuries of religious belief in a matter of weeks. Why? Because the resurrection was true. Because Jesus is who he said he was. Because he showed back up from the dead and he proved it. He proved himself victorious. Friends, this is why we stand on solid ground. This is why following Jesus is standing on a solid rock. Because Jesus really is alive. And that truth awakened their hearts in those days. But not just their hearts. 
Jesus also awakened their minds. That's the second thing he prepares them with. This is the teaching. The teaching. You see there in verse 2 it says, He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And then in verse 3, I read just a minute ago, it says, Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Well, what does this mean? What's he getting at here? It means that Jesus was teaching the disciples how to read their Bibles. He's teaching them how to read their Bibles. You see, the kingdom of God is what the Old Testament was all about. The kingdom of God is, is what the Old Testament throws at you every single page, whether you realize it or not. The kingdom of God, we learn about how it came, how it fell, and this future hope that it would be restored. You see, no one expected that it would be a suffering Messiah that would usher in the kingdom of God. That was God the Father's plan from the very beginning. And Jesus needed the apostles to see that. He needed them to understand how to read their Old Testaments from Genesis to Malachi and to see that how he and his redemptive work was always the plan from day one. Not just the plan from Genesis 3 after the fall and sin enters the world and Jesus and God is like, oh, gee whiz, what are we going to do now? Well, I guess I'll send Jesus. No, Jesus was always the plan. In fact, this is exactly what we see Jesus doing in this overlapping passage back in Luke's gospel story. In Luke 24, we find a detailed account of what's described here in, Luke's, Luke, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 1. You don't need to flip there, but let me read it to you. Beginning in Luke 24, 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He's not talking about the New Testament there. He's talking about the Old. He opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. See, friends, the apostles, they needed to know how to read their Bibles, how to read their Old Testament. And it's no less true for us today. See, the apostles were not preaching a new religion. They were not preaching a new religion, and neither are we. They were proclaiming, they were witnesses to the fulfillment of the old one. The entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus before he ascends into heaven, they needed to understand that, and he taught them just that as a faithful shepherd. They needed to understand that the whole Bible was about Jesus, if there were going to be any hope of success. And as I said, friends, so do we. It is impossible to understand the mission of Jesus for the church, apart from understanding all that led up to Jesus coming, living, dying, rising again, and ascending. If we are going to proclaim Jesus Christ, we need to make it clear that God has been about Jesus Christ from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God was about Jesus. He was about bringing in his kingdom through Jesus Christ. And we need to know that and we need to see that in the Old Testament. Why? Because if God is who he says he is and he does what he says he does, then we don't need a plan B ourselves either. That God is enough. His word is enough. We don't need a gimmick. We don't need a certain style. We don't need to be flashy. We need to be faithful to the word. 
if it's trustworthy and true. This is part of the convincing proof, especially for those of you who are here today and are not Christians. We are glad that you are here. You are always welcome here. You could not be in a better place this morning. And I believe what should in part be compelling to you as you consider Christianity and consider the Bible today is to see that this coming and dying for sinners by being crucified upon a tree and the victory over death and the resurrection, that all of that and so much more about who Jesus was was foretold in the Old Testament. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. Which brings us to the final and most impacting step of preparation, the preparing spirit, preparing their spirits with the very spirit of God. Look back at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, meaning Jesus, they heard it from him. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we're going to look more at this in chapter 2 when he actually keeps the promise of giving them the Holy Spirit. But what we need to understand today is that from the outset of this plan, the mission that we're going to consider in a moment, it was really impossible. What, What Jesus is about to tell them to do is impossible. They cannot do it on their own. It is completely beyond their abilities. This is a supernatural mission established to establish a supernatural kingdom. So it's going to require some supernatural empowering. And that's God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus tells them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come. Now why Jerusalem? Why couldn't they just hang out there on the mountain? Why couldn't Jesus just throw the Spirit down right then and there? Why do they need to go back to Jerusalem? Why is it such a special place? Well, simply put, because Jerusalem is the city of the king. Jesus isn't just some guy who rose from the dead. He's the son of David, the promised king of God's people, and the throne of that kingdom on earth was clearly established in Jerusalem. So they are called to wait there. And why are they to wait? Like I said, why couldn't Jesus just send the Spirit right then? Come on. They needed to wait because the Spirit was the gift that the king pours out on his people specifically at his enthronement and public exaltation. This is what the Old Testament tells us. And this is what happens when Jesus ascends. The blessings of the kingdom, the gift of the Spirit is poured out when Jesus sits on his throne. Isaiah 44.3 tells us, I will pour out my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And see, in Jesus all these Old Testament promises are being fulfilled. And God's people were about to experience God's blessing and God's rule. And not only would the Spirit empower them to be about the mission, but the Spirit would actually create them, make them into a supernatural, born-again people of God. Friends, right there in the promise of the gift of the Father, right there in the promise is the promise of the gospel itself. God made a lot of promises in the Old Testament. One of them is that we would die for our sins. We considered that two weeks ago when we thought about Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. We, because of our sin, are spiritually dead, cut off from life and God and God alone. And along with that, we are all guaranteed until Jesus returns physical death. I'm sorry to be such a downer this morning, but do you realize that 
Today, you are one day closer to death than you were yesterday. That unless Jesus returns, the morbidity rate for the human race is going to continue to be 100%. But God also promises that he will rescue his people from death. And friends, he also kept that promise through Jesus Christ, who didn't need to die. But he died for us as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sins. He took on the punishment of death, a punishment that he didn't deserve. And because he didn't deserve it, he didn't have to keep it. And so God raised him from the dead. And he is now ascended, exalted by God, who promises to give the gift of the Spirit, the gift of eternal life. The Spirit comes and dwells inside of us as a foretaste of heaven. That we get to have communion with God himself here and now, as wretched and weak and weary as we may be. Friends, this is the gospel. That everyone who turns away from their sins and puts their trust in Jesus Christ gets this God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to become, come to believe and to accept and to pursue with your life. We're not asking you to accept some social platform or some political platform. We're not asking you to dress like us or to like the same kind of music as we do or to be into the same kind of hobbies as we are. We are saying to you, this is Jesus, the King. And if you will turn to Him, He promises to not only forgive you, but to make you alive. I would love for you to respond to this today. Whether you're hearing it for the first time or for the 101st time. If you want to talk more about it, I will be at one of the back doors after the service. I would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus. After all, what gift would you like most from God? Health? Wealth? Security? Success? God promises to give you something better than all of those things. He promises to give you himself. Now, the real impact for those who are not Christians, that's what it is. But Christian, let me ask you, as we move to consider the mission, are you so distracted and so longing for the lesser gifts that God has not given you, like earthly success and comfort and health? Are you so busy longing for those lesser gifts that he has not given you that you're actually neglecting the incredible gift that God has already given you. He's given you his spirit. He's given you himself. He has filled you with himself. See, as Christians, when we care so much about the other things, the other things that Pastor Sean prayed in that prayer of confession, and we care so little about God himself, we begin to confuse the world about what Christianity is about. Like we're just some club who are in it for all the free gifts. Like, I just follow God for the swag. No, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. That's not what it means to be his people. That's not what it means to be indwelt by the Spirit. You know, as Christians, we are people who have had our minds opened to see Jesus from the Bible, just like the apostles. We are the people who have had our hearts awakened to the glorious reality that is the resurrection, just like the apostles. And we are the people of God who have the very Spirit of God within us. 
We are a supernatural people on mission. My question before we consider the mission as individual Christians and as a church, is that what people see? Is that what people see when they look at us? Or do they see a bunch of people honestly just consumed with lesser things, fairly distracted? We want people to see who we really are. As sinners dead but made alive. As supernatural people bought and brought to life by the Spirit to be on mission for God. Friend, let me ask you this, Christian, brother and sister. What would need to change in your life this week for people around you to see your love of Christ more than anything else? This leads to the mission itself. Point two, go back with me to verse six. So we think about the mission. So when they, that is the apostles, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So Jesus has just promised to give the Holy Spirit, and how do they respond? Well, we find that they believe the last days are surely arriving, right? That day when the kingdom is actually going to come with the outpouring of the Spirit... This is why they asked their question there in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We find that Jesus has something else in mind, doesn't he? Notice how Jesus answers each section of their question. There are multiple, it's a short question, but there's multiple pieces to it. And he answers each one of them. They ask if this is the time. Jesus responds, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Friends, just a real quick practical application. If you're flipping through the channels and you find somebody who says they know the time and the season that Jesus is going to return, turn your TV off as quickly as possible. The Bible tells us right here in Acts 1 that they are a false prophet. I'll leave that. They asked Jesus if he will bring the kingdom alone. Jesus' response. They say, are you going to restore the kingdom? Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's drawing in the Godhead here. And finally, they ask the nation, about the nation of Israel specifically. And Jesus' response, it's a big one. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We see here that the apostles have one thing on their mind and Jesus has something else completely. He tells them that their mission is to be his witnesses. I don't want you to pass over that word. It is fundamental to understanding what we are about to see in this book. And it's fundamental to understanding who you are supposed to be now. Witnesses through the Holy Spirit. Here already we see the apostles beginning to repeat the pattern of Jesus' own life. We'll see this over and over again in the book of Acts. Just as Peter was baptized by the Holy Spirit, anointed to begin his earthly mission of redemption, so also the apostles are going to be baptized in the Spirit, empowered for their mission. Only their mission isn't redemption. The apostles aren't going to save anyone, and it isn't going to bring in or advance the kingdom. Jesus doesn't say that either. What doesn't he say? He, says he doesn't say you're going to build the kingdom. 
He says, your mission is to be witnesses. Witnesses, testifiers, authoritative testifiers to who Jesus is and what he has done. He says this isn't going to be random either. It's going to be planned out and it's going to follow this geographic, and here comes a big phrase, this redemptive historical plan. It's going to follow a plan of redemption. Let me explain what I mean. He says here that you're going to be my witnesses, my testifiers to me. I'll be building my church. You just testify about me. You must be my representatives. You're first going to do that in Jerusalem. You're going to testify that I'm the king and the kingdom has come to Jerusalem. Then your witness is going to spread. Circles out. It's going to spread to Judea and Samaria. Now why there? Oh, just because Judea and Samaria basically covers the historical borders of all of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdom. We see them split apart way back in 1 Kings 12. We see here now that the apostles are going to go to Judea and Samaria and bring the two split kingdoms back together into one kingdom. Jesus is saying here, I'm not just going to reclaim my city, I'm going to reclaim my historical kingdom. Oh, but there's more. Finally, your witness will spread to the ends of the earth. We find here that the nations are going to be brought into the kingdom of God through the apostles' authoritative testimony about Jesus. We're reminded that God has never, ever been satisfied with a narrowly defined ethnic kingdom. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other major religion. Every other major religion that you see in the world is defined by a certain culture and a certain place and certain societal norms. But what we find about Christianity is that it's acultural. That Christianity is able to mold and fit. Another better way to say it is that Christianity is able to take all cultures and make them mold and fit and be shaped around the gospel. This is why if you leave here and go to church next Sunday at a church in Kenya or in the Czech Republic or in Thailand or in Bolivia, you're going to find Christians doing the same things. Sure, they'll be doing it in different ways. They'll be singing in different languages. Their translation of the Bible may be different, but they're going to be singing to one another. They're going to be praying. They're going to have the word preached. We see that the gospel and the kingdom of God is going to go like water and flow to the end of the earth. That's why we care about missions and Bible translations. Because Christianity is not limited to a certain people in a certain place and a certain level of cultural factors. Christianity is certainly not a white religion. But even more than that, Christianity is not bound by borders, either near or far. From the beginning of creation, God's goal has been that through the whole earth, his glory, his renown, his majesty, and his beauty would be proclaimed for the salvation, satisfaction, and never-ending joy of his people. We'll consider this more this evening in our devotional following our time of prayer in Isaiah 49. And we'll see this in the weeks to come. This mission given by Jesus is really the pattern we find throughout Acts. If you want to break the book of Acts down, you could do it this way. Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 6. Judea and Samaria, chapters 6 through 12. The breaking into the Gentile world, Acts 12 through 19. 
and finally to the end of the earth, that is Rome, the capital of the world at that time. If you get into Rome, you get into the whole world. We see that in chapters 20 through 28. This is what the mission was then. And it still is today. But what exactly should we as 21st century American Christians, inheritors of the working of the apostles, what should we take up for ourselves about this mission? This is a question that we're going to wrestle with over and over again in the the book of Acts. One of the problems that we tend to have when we read Scripture is we tend to overlay our own experiences and our own selves into the text. We have to be careful, especially careful, not to do that in the book of Acts because this is a specific time and God is doing a specific thing. With that said, there are many principles that we can draw out here, many truths that help us to walk and stand on the shoulders of the apostles today. Here are six things for you based on the mission. I know my time is running short, so I'm going to press through them quickly. Number one. We are witnesses because the apostles were authoritative witnesses. We are witnesses because the apostles were authoritative witnesses. This means we don't get to edit the gospel. We don't get to add to it. We don't get to take away from it. We don't have the ability to improve on their witness. They were repeaters of the gospel that Jesus handed down to them. And we are repeaters of them, delivering someone else's mail. We don't speak on our own authority. We speak on their authority, handing down what Jesus handed down to them. Number two, we don't bring the kingdom. I already mentioned this, but let me press it in here. We don't bring the kingdom because they didn't bring the kingdom. Do you see that? They didn't bring the kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom. And the same is true today. It is beyond our pay grade, friends. We don't bring the kingdom of God. Jesus alone brings his kingdom because he alone is the king, shown by his own resurrection and ascension. We are simply ambassadors announcing to citizens of a darkened kingdom to come and join the kingdom of light. But we don't bring the kingdom. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Number three. We should not confuse evangelism with the fruit of evangelism. What do I mean? I mean that we don't redeem anyone or anything. That's Jesus' job. We don't convert anyone. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We speak, we proclaim, we testify, and this means we don't just talk about ourselves. I think it's wonderful when people share their story about how God has redeemed them. I love hearing stories. But when all you do is share your story, you're just testifying about yourself. And yes, it should be a part of our evangelism. But at the core, the nub of evangelism is testifying, being a witness to what Jesus Christ has done and how he has redeemed This means that the measure of faithfulness in evangelism is not how many converts you've made. The faithfulness by which we measure our evangelism is have we faithfully shared the truth of who Jesus is. Four, our confidence does not come from our technique. And it doesn't come from how good our music is or how many programs we have or how sweet our community is. All of those things are wonderful. Some of you may think some of those things aren't true. But all of those things are wonderful in the life of the church. 
But that's not where our confidence comes from. Our confidence doesn't come that we have this beautiful building and we're here on this corner in this neighborhood. That's not where our confidence in evangelism comes. Our confidence comes, we see here, from the Spirit Himself. Our confidence in evangelism comes from the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, our evangelism and our witnessing is just a bunch of words. But with the Spirit, our words become the power of God unto salvation. Demonstrate the presence and the power of the Spirit today. And so our lives begin to prove and vindicate our words, our profession. So then the Spirit uses both our words and our lives to testify to Jesus. Five, next, we see the need for cross-cultural and language barriers to be broken down by witnesses to Jesus. And that's not easy. We see here that the, Jew, that, that, that the gospel is not just for Jews. The gospel is not just for Americans. The gospel is not just for English speakers. The gospel is for the nations. And we are to be witnesses to the nations. And that's going to require sacrifice and hard work and even inconvenience on our part. That's going to require us to consider the financial decisions of our church. It may require us to change our own career goals. It's going to change how we shepherd our children and their consideration of how they're going to spend their adult life. Parents, when was the last time you talked to your kids about the possibility of them being missionaries? It's going to require us to give our children and one another a vision of taking the gospel to the nations, not achieving some American dream. It's going to mess with our comforts. But it is the mission that God has called us to, which brings us to the final one. We are proof that the mission has been successful. I don't care how you think about it. From the apostles' perspective, sitting way back there in Jerusalem so long ago, hearing these words, to them, Roanoke, Virginia, is the end of the earth. Roanoke, it's not our Jerusalem Jerusalem is Jerusalem. Virginia is not our Judea. West Virginia is not our Samaria. And some of y'all can take that first, far as you want to. No, Judea and Samaria is Judea and Samaria. We here in Roanoke are the ends of the earth. And we're not the only ends. So is Vietnam. So is South Africa. So is Argentina. But we, sitting here today, believing and trusting and repenting to Jesus is proof that the mission has been successful. And it should give us great zeal and hope to keep going because we know that Jesus will complete the mission that he has started and not even the gates of hell will get in his way. Which brings us to the final couple of verses today, the ascension. This is where I want us to end. Look back at verse 9 through 11. Let me read it. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, here's the question I have when I come to this text. Why does Luke include the ascension again after he's just recorded it back in his gospel? 
Why does he bring it up again? There's, there's an overlap here. You can go back this week and read the last chapter of Luke. There, there's obvious overlaps here. Why does he bring it up again? And to kind of press that question in a little bit deeper, why does Jesus have to ascend to begin with? This is something we've thought a lot about from a technical standpoint as we've been looking at Hebrews over the last few months. But instead of coming at that question in that angle, I think it would be better for us just to end meditatively and devotionally thinking about this. Because this is the climax of the story. So many things cannot happen, friends, until Jesus ascends to the Father and is enthroned at his right hand. The ascension is proof that Jesus didn't just appear or go off somewhere and hang out on another continent. It's the proof that Jesus didn't just go into heaven and become like an angel. It's the proof that he is indeed sitting at the right hand of God as king of the world. And it is the ascension that gives us hope this morning. To get at the question that the sermon asks, the title of the sermon What's better than Jesus beside you? Friends, what's better than Jesus beside you is Jesus in heaven and the Holy Spirit inside of you. It is the gift of salvation that we have a Savior who has risen and who sits enthroned above all creation. And when I say all creation, I mean all of his people all of the world, as they've gathered this morning in Europe and in Asia and in Africa to sing praises to him. We join here in the next time zone with their choruses that they have lifted up. We have a Savior who reigns over all. And we have a spirit that lives inside of us all. The realization that we must come to as Christians is that if we're followers of Jesus, we actually have much more in common with that Christian who gathered for church this morning in Paraguay than we do for our next door neighbor who does not follow Christ. Because we will spend eternity with them. And so... I ask us the question that the two angels who appeared to the apostles asked them. Why do you stand gazing into heaven? Do you not know that this Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way? What is the implicit thing that they're asking there? Why are you just standing around? He's coming back. So it's time to get to work. It means that we don't have to stand around looking. It means that we have direct access to God. It means that Jesus is reigning. And it keeps us longing for his return. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, knowing that our Savior is enthroned at your right hand, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts and our minds and our very souls to worship you as we prepare to take this supper, as we prepare to eat together. We thank you, Lord, that you have gathered us from many different places, from many nations, that you have brought us here to worship and glorify our Savior. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.